expectations of millions of Americans calling out sick. This upcoming week, as the number of Omicron COVID cases spikes, the U.S. recorded its highest day, almost one million new cases on Friday, after reaching a record on Monday. Yet this administration continues to refuse to acknowledge treatments that have worked, such as anti-malaria drugs, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. They are cheap, they are generic, they're off patent. Why is the administration telling us to ride it out and be sick for two weeks, stopping our lives for two weeks instead of treating these flu symptoms at the first sign of infection? Joining me right now is Dr. Pierre Corey. Uh, Dr. Corey is the president and chief medical officer of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. He joins myself and Senator Ron Johnson. Dr. Corey, thanks very much for being here. What, what do you thanks. think is going on? Well, what you're seeing is the product of a system, right? The system is entirely structured, and it's scary how, how it's structured. It's structured to entirely act within the interests of for-profit pharmaceutical corporations. There is no system for assessing and approving uh, generic drugs. And in fact, it's almost like there's a, uh, there's, there's a blockade that's set up. They just don't approve them. They don't assess them. And in this pandemic, those drugs have actually been shown to be the most effective. They're used all around the world. 25% of the planet is using ivermectin in COVID. There's 73 controlled trials, yet they're being ignored. The system will only listen to large, double-blind, randomized controlled trials done by pharma. And so these generic drugs, they don't get approved and they get ignored. And, and the tragedy, Maria, is that this entire pandemic, we have not had an early treatment recommended by the, by the government. It's because they've been waiting for the approvals for the novel pack patented drugs. And the, one, the two that just got approval, one study, one and done with these pharmaceutical companies. And meanwhile, you have the generic drugs, which have many dozens of trials, and they don't get approval. It is absolutely absurd. And these drugs that just got approved, one doesn't work. India just canceled their order for it because they know it doesn't work. And the other one is highly toxic. And so the absurdity and, and the tragedy and the damage on the American people by a broken system, it, it, we need to fix this. Where people are dying because they're being deprived of highly effective, cheap, widely available drugs that do not present as obscene profits to the pharmaceutical companies. That is disgusting. I know for a fact that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin work to treat COVID. Well, I know for a fact, too, that um, having worked with these doctors, the FLCCC, team for now nearly two years, early treatment with the off-patent drugs in the FLCCC protocols works. And in addition to that, their Math Plus hospital treatment protocol works in patients who are in the ER and in the ICU. We've seen incredible turnarounds with people who were really on their way out but once they got the medicines, these off-patent and expensive medicines that the doctors have been using, they turned around and I could introduce you to dozens of people that I've interviewed who wouldn't be here were it not for the treatment that this group has done. And one other thing I need to remind you is that this group came together, these doctors came together to simply share information to try to save lives in a pandemic. They give it away for free. All of these protocols are going around the world for free. And as Pierre Corey just told you, 25% of the world is using the medicines that our doctors have been talking about. And most of them are doing better than we are here in this country. Somebody ought to ask some questions about that. 
somebody in major media. Well, anyway, welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ash, and I'm an old reporter, uh, but I'm working with these doctors, creative director of this alliance. And tonight we are going to focus on a subject that you've all been asking for. This is really important. We have someone who can answer the questions, what about the children? What can we do to help the children remain healthy and safe? We are lucky to have with us a new member of the FLCCC Alliance, Dr. a pediatrician, Dr. Elizabeth Mumper. And she's going to be able to tell you a lot about the facts with children and COVID and how you can help keep your children and your grandchildren healthy and safe. And you're, you will be happy to know tonight that Pierre Corey is gonna be with us. He's gonna be a little bit late. He's, he's busy doing other interviews and things. We try to get him out to talk to the world as much as possible. But Dr. Paul Merrick is here with us. And without further ado, uh, let me get you to the doctors. Paul, are you ready to do the honors to introduce um, Liz, our new doctor? Well, I hope, can we, maybe we need to. Hi, Betsy. Oh, there's Pierre. You're I was here. just coming in late. Paul's supposed to run the show. I don't know where Paul is, but. Um, okay, well, we're glad and, to and see Dr. you. And Dr. Mumper, I see her there. I don't know why they're not joining. Um, there's Paul. Who's joining? Hi, oh, Paul. There we go. Hi, Liz. Hi, great to see you guys. Hey, so it's our pleasure to introduce Dr. Mumper. Uh, she's a pediatrician who has uh, enormous experience dealing with many chronic and acute disorders and, and kids. Um, she's become an expert in COVID and all the issues. And with no further ado, Dr. Mumper. Thank you, Paul. It's a real honor. I've been watching you guys for a year or so now. And um, I am happy to be part of the team. I can't think of better people to work with. I'm going to share my screen um, and um, take a look at some of the basic concepts of using some of the principles that the FLCCC has developed and applying them to a pediatric population. So if you're not seeing my screen, I think maybe Betsy or Paul or Pierre, you would tell me, but do you no, see No, it? it's good. We see uh, it. All righty. So um, I have a special interest in complex chronic illness, and I kind of cut my teeth on the autism epidemic. So a lot of the nutritional biochemistry that I've learned um, came as a result of that passion. I am, uh, identify myself as a functional medicine doctor, having been certified by the Institute of Functional Medicine. And so I'm eager to see how we might jump in and do some good things for children in this pandemic. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about masks in kids. Um, ironically, in Henrico County, which is outside of Richmond, Virginia, um, which is about two hours away from me, one of my colleagues who was on uh, a school committee was reporting that kids were getting speech therapy with their therapists and the kids wearing masks. So I viewed this as kind of a crazy thing that was born out of a community that was acting out of fear and not really thinking very rationally because obviously with speech therapy, one of the things you wanna have happen 
is the kids are looking at the therapist's mouth as they try to figure out the sounds. Um, we don't have children who are as healthy now as they used to be uh, when I was a child in the 50s. Um, we've had an epidemic of chronic illness in this country and the inflection point was around 1989. So we are seeing so many more illnesses in kids uh, that are chronic as opposed to just acute illnesses of the past. So asthma is the most common chronic illness, allergies, diabetes. We're starting to see type one and now type two diabetes in kids. Autism spectrum, um, this is my life's work. Uh, when I was a medical student, the uh, rates of autism were one in 5,000. And so whenever we had a child with autism at BCU, we were all called to look and we're told that we'd never see this again. Now, unfortunately, according to the latest data, it's one in 44 kids. And that is a birth cohort from 2008 because the data lags behind. So I assure you, um, it is an even worse situation now. We're seeing more kids with cancer who have survived because of the incredible strides we've made against childhood leukemia and other cancers. Similarly, AIDS, kids are surviving longer with treatment. Seizures are on the rise and they coexist with many other uh, conditions. And then obesity is a huge problem because 30% of American children now are overweight or obese. And you probably know that obesity is a big risk factor in COVID illness. So I wanna talk a little bit about Africa. Um, African children play in the dirt and Africa has done a much better job than we in the United States of handling the COVID pandemic. And we have some theories about why that might be so, including their use of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which many of the population use regularly. In fact, uh, some of the African people call ivermectin Sunday, Sunday, because they are used to taking it every week as a parasite preventer. So there's been a huge amount of information over the years suggesting that if we sterilize our kids too much, and don't let them play in the dirt, that they actually end up with a Th1, Th2 shift in their immune system with much more autoimmunity, much more allergies, much more asthma. So for a strong immune system, I say, have your dog lick your baby. Um, it is really true that kids need to play in the dirt and they need to be licked by animals and they should not be over sanitized in infancy and toddlerhood. So here's my question for the people that came up with all the masking mandates. How's a kid gonna eat dirt if they're wearing a mask? So we know that these kids who grow up being licked by dogs and playing in the mud are less likely to have chronic illnesses like Hashimoto's or celiac disease or type one diabetes. The happy birthday song was repurposed to be the amount of time that kids would wash their hands. Um, they would sing the happy birthday song to themselves as they were washing their hands. So one of the things I've noticed in my practice is kids who now are afraid of germs and kind of have these OCD behaviors about hand washing and staying clean. And I think it's very unfortunate. So I mentioned Africa. Um, I looked at some of the countries in Africa and looked at their deaths per million from COVID and compared it to the United States. And as you can see, Africa as a whole has done a lot better than we have in terms of their overall mortality. 
in Burundi and Chad, the numbers are minuscule. And here in the United States, our deaths per million is 2,554. So one might wonder why the world looks to us for advice and leadership when our numbers aren't the worst in the world. Uh, right now, Peru, unfortunately, has that uh, placement, but we did not handle it very well. So we need to put childhood COVID in perspective. So if you look at comparing it to things like bike and car accidents or childhood suicide, it's actually not very common. There was a seven country survey, which include the US, the UK, Italy, France, Spain, Germany, and South Korea. And the death rate from COVID in pediatric patients was 1.7 per 1 million. And that did include kids that had chronic illness. So if you look at the overall mortality from COVID-19, this was an analysis up to February of 2021, it's only 0.48%. And when that was extended to July, 2021, it was only 0.6%. So roughly a half a percent of childhood deaths are from COVID. And yet we've gone to these extraordinary measures of locking down schools and mandating masks to protect kids from this particular illness. What I've seen most dramatically is this horrible effect on children's mental health. So I wanted to take you through some of the data. And this comes directly from the MMWR from the CDC. And they looked at mental health related emergency department visits during the pandemic. And the news is not good at all. So adolescent mental health claims doubled in the spring of 2020 compared to 2018 and 2019. Um, medical claims decreased. And in fact, in my practice, well child visits and other sick visits declined um, between 45 and 65% from our prior year numbers. But what we started to see is more obsessive compulsive disorder, these kids with compulsive hand washing or recurring um, worries about germs. Um, we saw huge increases in anxiety disorders. Every August, we do a bunch of school and sports physicals on teenagers. And out in my practice, about 75% of them reported significant anxiety or depression. Um, the data shows us that major depressive disorder increased by about 83.9% and adjustment disorders were up about 90%. This is very worrisome to me. Suicide attempts began rising in February of 2020, and you can see the very significant increases um, as the early stages of the pandemic rolled out. And I have had to worry about several of my most favorite patients who were so depressed and anxious that they were suicidal for months on end. Fortunately, they're all still alive at this point. Here's another issue. What happens when you put elementary school kids in front of a computer for a year? So first of all, not every child has access to the internet and access to adequate computers, especially for poorer families. There may be one device in the whole household and people have to share that cell phone and perhaps there are three or four kids in the family who are supposed to be doing online learning. We hear of stories of parents having to go to the Walmart parking lot and have their kids sit in the car all day so that they can get um, a signal. 
so that they can be online. My biggest gripe, though, was they were using this technology in kids that were not developmentally able to really take advantage of it. Um, I have a daughter and a son-in-law that teach third and fourth grade and know people who were trying to teach kindergarten virtually. And they spent so much of the time telling the kids to turn on their cameras and trying to navigate the technology of the Zoom that the estimates are that they only learned about 30% of what they were expected to learn for the year. Here's a very concerning study out of Brown University. And they had a large ongoing study of child neurodevelopment. And they compared the cognitive scores in 2020 and 2021 to the previous decades work between 2011 and 2019. And they found this very significant impairment in cognitive abilities in the pandemic children compared to the pre-pandemic children. So this is very concerning to me. The data was that basically, um, previously they um, had these early learning composite scores that were right around 100. So you can think of it as somewhat analogous to IQs in adults. And they were seeing these huge decreases somewhere in the neighborhood of 86 or 78 for the pandemic kids. So we really are going to have to follow these kids prospectively to see how much these impairments stick. All the data that has gone on about the value of early childhood education and early childhood socialization, uh, to me, makes this data very, very worrisome. So what about Omicron and kids? Um, you know, the headlines, as always, are scary. Um, they talk about Omicron cases being up 60%, hospitalizations being up 14%. Well, I'll tell you, in pediatrics, hospitalizations always go up in the winter. And so that can be a very misleading statement for someone that's not aware of the seasonality of pediatrics. In fact, in our pediatric unit at my local hospital, you know, we'll often have um, census of one or two or three kids in the summer. Usually they're in because they're getting their tonsils taken out or they broke their arm. And when I was running a residency program, we had trouble feeling like our residents were getting enough of an education if they happened to have their peds rotation in the summer. Whereas in the winter, the census would be up in the teens and they would get to manage some patients. So these headlines can be very misleading in my opinion. But at the same time, we found out that booster doses of the vaccine were approved for kids 12 and older, even though we have a lot of evidence that there has not been demonstrated efficacy against the current variant of Omicron. If you really do a thoughtful analysis about Omicron, it, there's about a 70% decrease in emergency room visits compared to Delta, 55% decrease in hospitalizations, and a 66% decrease in ICU admissions. And I suspect those numbers are even better um, for kids. Now, no doubt about it, Omicron is definitely more infectious. Um, if you think back to when we were talking about r naughts, which is basically how many people are you likely to infect, with alpha, it was probably somewhere in the one to two, maybe three range, delta up to three to five. Omicron may well be seven to 10 people. That's why we're seeing so many cases. 
And if you look at the viral load in wastewaters in Boston, which is an interesting way to track the virus in the community, you see that there's definitely a huge increase. So we don't argue that the cases are going up. I just want to make the argument that that actually might be a good thing, because if Omicron is less serious, and for most people it certainly seems to be, might this be our way to get herd immunity and to actually develop a bunch of people who are going to have broad, robust, and durable immunity to the virus with cross-protection to other variants. Because remember, if you actually get the virus, you don't just develop antibodies to the spike protein the way you would if you got the shot. You also develop antibodies to the nucleocapsid protein and other uh, proteins that are in the virus, and that can be very protective. So as we see that Omicron is really increasing, we notice that we're not seeing huge increases in ICU rates or death rates, although we have to acknowledge that death rates lag behind, but it really seems like Omicron is going to be um, uh, much less serious for most people. So this is a comparison of ER visits um, comparing Omicron to Delta. And you can see that the risks are just so much lower for going to the ER or getting into the hospital or having to be admitted to the ICU or need mechanical ventilation. I mean, it's a pretty significant difference if your risk is only 0.07% to get on a ventilator with Omicron. And then in children under five years of, old, of age, um, the overall risks of emergency department visits with Omicron were only 3.89%, which was lower than what was reported at 21% for Delta. Although honestly, I don't think anywhere near 21% of my patients went to the ER for the Delta variant. And then um, for hospitalization, it's 0.96% for Omicron compared to 2.5% for Delta. So they looked at the trends in various age groups. So I'm gonna pause here for a minute and stop sharing my screen and see if there are any questions from the audience that we wanna address at this time, Betsy and Paul. Okay, we do have questions. And one is from Melissa Chapel, and she wants to know, what information or data do you have about Omicron in babies? I have a two month old and I am very concerned about him catching it. I don't have a lot of data that I've seen published in babies. I will tell you my clinical experience and take it for what it's worth because it is clinical observation from my practice. In the last two weeks, I've had three babies with Omicron. One was two months old. Um, that baby had pink eye for about 24 hours and no other symptoms, did much better than the parents. Um, I was worried about that baby, so I checked on him daily for a couple of days. Um, he breezed through it had another child that was 10 months old, tested positive, um, presumably Omicron. I didn't have the sequencing to prove it, but that's what's circulating in my community. That baby had a runny nose for about three days and breezed through it. And then my third patient was somewhere between six and eight months of age, had mild upper respiratory symptoms, ended up doing great. So um, there are probably a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that, and, and this is somewhat theory and somewhat data, 
Um, younger kids have less um, ACE2 receptors than older people do. So one of the thoughts is there's less of the receptor for the virus to attach to and cause trouble in the very young people. So it's, it's a little bit different from what we think of because usually we worry more about babies getting septic. But in my experience, my N of three, um, they breeze through it. So I would try not to worry as much. We have a couple more. Do you have time to take a couple more right now? Because these, these are good. <laughs> these are good. Um, we have a question from Sonia who says, can you address giving ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine to young people with hypothyroidism? Yeah, so um, that's an interesting question because theoretically there can be an effect. Um, I, um, I am going to get into treatment in the second half of the presentation. And one of the things that I will tell you is that I don't think that kids need ivermectin as much as adults do. So I don't think we always have to go to ivermectin, especially if we take care of things like their vitamin D status and give them vitamin C and uh, use quercetin and some of the other things that we'll talk about. There is a theoretic problem where um, it can affect thyroid function and if you were using ivermectin uh, really long-term, perhaps for prophylaxis in a high-risk kid, you should be following their uh, thyroid studies. So good point. And uh, I agree that we need to just keep that in the back of our mind. Well, so Betsy, why doesn't Elizabeth do her second part of her talk? And then we can take some more questions. Because I What's think that... Yeah, the next question was, how do you treat children from Steve? How do you treat children with COVID-19? So there you go. Well, Steve, have I got a few ideas for you. So here we go. So first of all, I want to make it clear that this is a work in progress. Um, I worked on some of these uh, suggestions, but we have not really had a powwow between Pierre and uh, Paul and myself to come to consensus about what things should be included and what the doses are. So this is very much a rough draft that we put together because of the uh, high need for guidance. So this is my mnemonic, which is child care, which is the way to sort of help you remember some of the things that are in what I am proposing. And I will say that the et cetera part is probably gonna be expanded and we may change this, um, but I was gonna go through a few basic points with you. So here we go. So first, chronic conditions should receive optimal management. So remember I told you that um, for the most part, kids that are healthy do fine with COVID. We do worry about comorbid conditions like diabetes and cancer, congenital heart disease, chronic lung disease like cystic fibrosis, and especially obesity. So some people are looking at how to meet the needs of kids with chronic illness. And I've given you a couple of references here, but basically I think any child that has a chronic illness, we need to treat them as individuals and look at their specific situation. And we may have to do more aggressive social isolation in some of those kids, but I would argue that we need to use that as kind of a last resort. We certainly would like to manage our diabetics very well and have their hemoglobin A1Cs in a really good place, make sure that the kids with cystic fibrosis are getting their 
um, ongoing treatment with chest physical therapy and their antibiotic uh, surveillance with their sputum cultures and all those things. So taking really good care of the kids with chronic illness is important. And I think if we have children who are obese, we should be more aggressive with this protocol than we would with a healthy child who had no comorbid conditions and was a healthy weight. Um, I'm big into prevention in my practice. And so one of the ways that we can prevent chronic illness is to encourage breastfeeding. And so we know that breastfeeding is associated with less risk of diabetes, uh, type one that you get in childhood, that's an autoimmune disease, celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, and some cancers. We also know that there's a decreased risk for infection, allergy, and autoimmunity. And this poor kid has just undergone skin testing for uh, allergens. So this child likely has an allergy uh, to something. Um, we really emphasize gut health in our practice. Um, I know that FLCCC is talking about probiotics as part of a game plan against COVID. And we certainly utilize probiotics to try to um, make the child's gut in the first year of life very diverse. We know that chronic illness in general correlates with less gut flora diversity. And we know kids that are breastfed have fewer hospitalizations for respiratory disease and also for GI disease. Second one, hydroxychloroquine. I will say, even though I'm a big fan of the FLCCC and um, believe in the fact that hydroxychloroquine works, I've really only used it on one patient who was a obese, uh, very inflamed child with autism and significant inflammatory bowel disease. Um, I don't agree with the recommendations that it should not be given. So I wanted you to feel comfortable with dosing on kids. So for example, when hydroxychloroquine is used for lupus in children, um, here are the dosing guidelines. And typically we don't go above about 400 milligrams per day. And I've given you several different references for that. Um, so yes, I think that we can certainly use hydroxychloroquine in children. We should take a lesson from the rest of the world. Um, but kids in general do pretty well with this. So I think we should reserve it for uh, specified cases and take care of all the sort of fundamental nutraceutical stuff first. Next thing is ivermectin. I'm also a big fan of ivermectin and took it for 15 months while I continued to work in my clinic. We never closed. And I didn't get COVID until the pharmacist wouldn't fill my prescriptions anymore. And I was ironically exposed to a fully vaccinated person. So ivermectin, I think, is really important for both prevention and early treatment. Um, my main problem now is it's prohibitively expensive in my community because the chain stores won't fill my prescriptions. But I wanted to give you some data about the, um, the safety in kids. So this was a study, I believe in Africa, of over a thousand kids, um, and they weighed less than 15 kilograms. And they were getting ivermectin for all sorts of things like scabies and strongyloides and other parasites. And uh, there was only a total of 1.4% of adverse events, none of whom were none of which were serious. 
and there was always recovery. So I think that the data shows that ivermectin is safe in kids as well as in adults. Lifestyle. This is the part I'm going to emphasize, and part of this comes from my identifying as a functional medicine doctor. So in my practice, we try to look at things like nutrition and sleep, movement, which is a more socially acceptable word now than exercise, apparently, stress management and relationships as sort of fundamental parts of the child's life and work on those cornerstones rather than just reaching for prescription pads all the time. So just as a brief review, you know, nutrition in America for kids is not good. If you look at the studies about how few kids get five vegetables a day or how many um, states have obesity, in Virginia, we're at 30% overweight or obese in our childhood population. COVID made this far worse. Um, kids had access to food 24 seven. They were craving comfort foods. And in my practice, we saw significant weight, down, weight gains during the first 10 months of COVID lockdowns. So unfortunately, nutrition worked against us in terms of good responses to COVID. I wanna also talk about sleep hygiene. Um, we use a lot of um, sleep suggestions in our practice. We use Epsom salts baths because absorption of the magnesium tends to calm the children and help them sleep better. We also use magnesium orally for anxiety if we need to. We talk to parents about dark rooms so that the light isn't affecting the pineal gland, cool rooms and white noise. And then a lot of kids in COVID were having nightmares. So they need to be able to talk about the content to the parents and then the parents need to be able to reassure them. Now, I wanted to remind you, this is kind of interesting because for years we were told there wasn't any lump system in the brain. And at my alma mater, which is the University of Virginia, where I did my residency and chief residency, they did this uh, very exciting study where they basically showed that at night, your brain shrinks a bit, you kind of uh, swish around the fluids up there and you take the trash out of your brain. So one of the things I want kids to be doing during COVID or when they're battling any other illness is to have good sleep so that they can have good detoxification of their neurologic system. So movement, there was a lot of decreased exercise um, and a lot of kids weren't going outside during lockdown. It made me very sad when I saw kids out um, playing outside that were still wearing masks because I think we've now proven that the odds of um, getting infected with uh, a COVID virus um, in the outdoors where there's such good air circulation is is nil, and even if the child did get it again, they're at such low risk. So we saw a lot more um, problems from lack of exercise and weight gain than I ever did from COVID. Now I wanna talk a little bit about stress management. The first thing that happened in the um, lockdown was that the kids started spending all their time on screens. And I was kind of shocked in my practice about all these violent video games that these elementary school kids were playing. and you know, a lot of those games basically give you a target and have you kill it. So kids were coming in um, with their parents, the parents were reporting these horrible nightmares about the kids getting killed. Uh, the kids were feeling like they were gonna get killed and turned out they were playing all these games like this. So just be aware that, um, that video gaming and really young children can have a lot of adverse effects. 
And then the other big thing about the lockdowns was relationships, because for many at-risk children, they get a lot of their supportive relationships at school. And their classroom teacher might be one of the people that makes them feel good about themselves and enhances their self-esteem. We know that so many parents during COVID were going through horrible job losses and financial stress. And we know that rates of domestic abuse and substance abuse spiked. And we know that rates of child abuse spiked. So there is value in having a network in a community. And there are real hazards to locking kids down in their apartments. Uh, next thing I want to talk about is vitamin D. Um, I love vitamin D. There's so many great uh, immune aspects of vitamin D. Um, it inhibits T cell proliferation. It increases IL-10 and TGF-beta. Um, this is especially important. I first learned about this in my autism patients because a lot of kids with autism have very high interferon gamma and very high TGF-alpha, which are very pro-inflammatory. And so one of the strategies we use to really get their vitamin D levels up so that they've got more IL-10, which counts as a counter-regulatory cytokine. Um, so vitamin D is wonderful. The other thing is that vitamin D works in the hippocampus to help a child remember what they learned in school today, tomorrow. So it converts your short-term memories into long-term memories. And especially since there were so many educational um, impacts of the pandemic, I think that this is really important that kids need to have enough vitamin D. And we know from the studies that the FLCCC has cited that COVID morbidity and mortality correlates inversely with vitamin D levels. So there are a bunch of references on this. Um, I like to keep optimal ranges of vitamin D in the 50 to 80 range. You may not know, but when we establish 30 nanograms per deciliter as the sort of good level, it was set to prevent rickets. Well, I wanna do more than just prevent rickets in my patients. I like them to have good memories and good immune systems. So doses are very different depending on uh, the latitude that the child lives at, how much sun exposure they get, whether or not they've got black skin or uh, white skin. But as a general rule, I've given you some dosing guidelines. I am not nearly as worried about overdosing kids with vitamin D and having complications from that as I am about all the kids that I see that are um, so low in vitamin D. And remember, vitamin D has a really profound effect on mood, especially in women. So when we see girls that are adolescents that are having anxiety or depressive disorders, one of the things we order is the vitamin D level, and I'm never surprised when it comes back at 13 or 17. And they often get dramatically better once we get them up above 50 or 60. Next thing is vitamin C. And I thought it was interesting when I was looking for the dietary guidelines, um, they recommend from zero to six months of age, 40 milligrams, and from six to 12 months, 50 milligrams. And then they immediately go into a bunch of side effects that are associated with overconsumption, including kidney stones and nausea and diarrhea. Um, so I just wanna point out that ascorbic acid is water soluble and kids usually have great kidneys. So I'm not having to deal with the same kind of kidney disease that Pierre and Paul do in the ICU with adults. So they're generally able to pee out any excess. 
And yes, if they take a lot orally, they often do get some diarrhea, but by frequent dosing and potentially using some buffered forms, um, we or if we use vitamin C IV, that's a great way to avoid the diarrhea. So I think that the advice has been overly conservative. So um, I kind of go with the geniuses. And Paul, I'm going to put you in this for your seminal work on vitamin C and sepsis. Yeah. And one of my heroes, who is Linus Pauling, who wrote uh, voluminously about vitamin C. And I didn't really realize until the last couple of years, he actually got a lot of criticism throughout his career um, for those stands. And yet I believe he has been proven to be right. So I'm going with the geniuses on this one and think that vitamin D, vitamin C has a very, very um, big place in COVID. I wanted to add vitamin A because we use that as a general antiviral and in my experience with kids that have chronic disease and autism in particular, we see a lot of kids that are actually low in vitamin A. And if you start looking for it, you'll see these fine rashes. Um, these are both vitamin A deficiency rashes on the face and on, uh, I think this is an arm. Um, so we use it, um, you know, you wonder, should we bring back cod liver oil? Because cod liver oil has vitamin A and vitamin D in it. Our grandmothers used it. Um, and back in our grandmother's day, kids were eating fruits and vegetables and not, you know, Skittles and uh, Doritos all the time. So I think vitamin A is overlooked as a potential antiviral. And then I want to emphasize recovery. Um, most kids do well with COVID. So let's look at the data. The survival rate is 99.998%, and that takes all comers in pediatrics, including those with cancer and cystic fibrosis and chronic lung disease and uh, diabetes. Um, a lot has been written about multi-system inflammatory syndrome, and pediatricians are scared that one of their patients is gonna have this. But when you look at the prevalence or the incidence it was 5.1 persons per 1 million person months. So it doesn't happen very often. It usually happens about four weeks after COVID and the kids might present with fever and rashes and red eyes and diarrhea and vomiting. It kind of has a lot of the same symptoms of Kawasaki's disease for those of you who are pediatricians and family docs or of toxic shock syndrome. And it is associated with a fair amount of inflammation. But I would argue that if we did a better job up front of trying to deal with inflammation, maybe we wouldn't have these serious presentations um, so frequently. The other point I want to make um, is that, and Fauci has just recently acknowledged this point, even though uh, those in my circles have been talking about this for about a year now, a um, couple of things. Most kids who are hospitalized and have a positive COVID test um, don't really have COVID as the main reason they're there. So for example, if you break your arm and you go to the hospital, you're gonna be automatically tested. You may have a positive test and that brings up the whole issue of PCR testing and how in my local hospital, I can't find out what kind of cycle numbers they're using. So I don't know if they're cutting the test off at 17 or 28 or 45. We know that at high cycle times, 
we're getting a lot of false positives because very small amounts of viral debris are being picked up. But even so, you know, the kids that come in with appendicitis have COVID if their test is positive. But when they look at these kids, this is not a huge study, about 40% of them were asymptomatic, 28% of them had very mild to moderate disease, 7.7% were severe, 12.8% critical, and 12% had multi-system inflammatory syndrome with COVID. So we, we have to really put all this in perspective against the background of all the kids that are out in the community running around and uh, either are asymptomatic or have a mild cold. We also know that African-Americans and mixed race children and Latinos have a higher risk of hospitalization too. And I think the data needs to be sorted out, whether some of that is vitamin D deficiency, whether some of that is access to care and lack of access to early treatment, et cetera. But those are the facts. So it's basically very hard to find a healthy kid who dies from COVID itself. Uh, Marty Macquarie is from Hopkins, and he looked at 48,000 uh, insurance claims and could not find any kid that died unless they had a significant pre-existing condition. Um, this has just been recently repeated in Germany. I was just reading in the last few days, and they had um, uh, a very large cohort, and they could find zero healthy kids who had died in Germany over many months of COVID. So parents are scared because of what they see on the media, but they um, really should be relatively reassured that this is a rare phenomenon in healthy kids. So now we come to et cetera, and we may add some more stuff in here, but my first et cetera is um, about uh, IgA and respiratory and GI secretions being one of our main defenses against COVID and one of the things we really want to promote in kids. So we know that SARS-CoV-2 enters through the respiratory tract, the eyes, and the GI tract. And IgA is the primary immunoglobulin there that's going to protect us. So one of the things I have learned to do in my children on the autism spectrum is use Saccharomyces boulardii. We think of this as a good yeast that fights bad yeast, and we use it a lot in our kids that have very dysregulated um, Th1, Th2 immunity. But one of the things I love most about it is that it increases secretory IgA secretion. It also is a good um, tool against C. diff. So using Saccharomyces boulardii might be one of the things that we haven't thought of previously that potentially we should um, do some research about whether that might be helpful. If we can strengthen the IgA defenses of our children, I think they'll do even better in the face of COVID. So I gave you this because we're gonna give you these slides. And one of my mentors is Sydney Baker, um, who's a uh, doctor at, in Sag Harbor now, who is one of the grandfathers of the functional medicine movement. And, this is his little handout for parents about how you do Saccharomyces boulardii. And if you start slow, you can actually increase it a fair amount 
um, but you have to monitor the child. So I'm not going to go over the slide for you now. I'm just going to give it to you so you can have it as a resource. Now, about zinc, um, why not? I love the, this article, to zinc or not to zinc for COVID prophylaxis or treatment. So first I wanna say that almost every kid is zinc deficient in the toddler years. Because if you think about what zinc is found in, it's nuts and seeds, which most parents don't give because of the choking risk. It's clams and oysters, which most self-respecting toddlers won't even eat. And it's meat, which some kids take and some kids don't. So we find a lot of zinc deficiency in our patients with chronic illness. And one of the things zinc does for you is it knits together um, the cells in your gut so that it helps you maintain tight gap junctions and you don't have these loose gap junctions where your immune system is seeing everything that goes through your GI tract and potentially um, raising antibodies against it. However, the NIH in its infinite wisdom recommends against zinc unless it's in a clinical trial, which would take a while. And in the meantime, uh, I think we should act uh, based on what we know in clinical evidence and experience. So zinc um, is basically an ionophore. It has all these helpful effects like being an anti-inflammatory and antioxidant. It induces metallothionine. This is a big problem in our autism population is that a lot of kids have dysregulation of their detoxification and metallothionine metabolism. So um, giving zinc is one of the things we do to broaden appetite and to help their detox. It helps you with com complement and natural killer cell activity. Our autism patients um, tend to have very low natural killer cell function and it helps with phagocytosis. So it seems to me to be a big win. And in my experience, zinc toxicity and copper depletion is extremely rare. Many kids have relatively high coppers and low zinc. So it's hard to get a kid too copper deficient. I agree we should look at it. We should be wary of it. But I think that the pros outweigh the cons in a big way. So I want to tell you about one of my colleagues. Uh, Dr. Walsh is a biochemist um, who uh, was in charge of the Pfeiffer Institute for many years. Um, and he did a series of experiments with these prisoners. And he tells these funny stories about um, going uh, to see folks in prison and looking at their baseline zinc levels and then supplementing them with zinc. And you can read about the paper that he wrote because I've given you the reference. But he um, was able to document that when they had their zincs replaced, they quit like stabbing each other in the showers. They had much less fighting in the cafeterias. And it really makes you think about some of the underlying biomedical reasons that some people have such behavioral problems. Um, he also uh, studied Charles Manson and was the one that was allowed to analyze Beethoven's hair uh, for toxicology. So he's quite the interesting guy. But we find that zinc is extremely important for taste and smell. And I've often wondered during the pandemic as people have talked about losing taste or smell as being uh, such a sign of COVID, if that means that people are essentially depleting their zinc stores, trying to do all the things that zinc does, um, including the fact that zinc is in at least 300 uh, biochemical reactions in our bodies. 
Want to talk a little bit about quercetin? We use that a lot. It's a nice mast cell stabilizer. Um, food sources include um, fruits and veggies, seeds, grains. Kale is particularly good, as are red onions. Not many toddlers and elementary school kids necessarily eat those foods. Um, I like the fact that it helps against allergy, inflammation, autoimmune disease. It also has some anti-clotting properties. If you give it with vitamin C, it works even better. Um, I tend to use sometimes doses a little higher than it has been written in the FLCCC protocol, and I'm open to changing this with evidence. Um, again, this is our first shot at trying to give you some guidance in kids, and it comes from my experience. So I'm not saying that this is going to be the final version that we publish. Melatonin, very important, far beyond sleep. It's such an excellent antioxidant. Um, and that mechanism is independent of the M1 and M2 receptors that are important to induce sleep. Uh, we know that it helps regulate mood and learning and memory and immune activity. So what's not to like? Um, we don't recommend using it in babies where they're still trying to establish their sleep and wake rhythms. But we do use it sometimes in toddlers after we've exhausted all the other sort of sleep hygiene measures. And they mostly do well between 0.5 and 3 milligrams. Occasionally, in some circumstances, we'll use as much as 5 to 10 milligrams, but that would not be typical. I will say that it would be ideal if we could always give the long-acting versions, because some people that take melatonin in the short-acting versions wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning with nightmares. And kids have to be able to swallow a pill without chewing it in order to have a version that works well. Although there are some uh, intriguing things being done with sprays now with melatonin that I think are going to play out well in the future. And then famotidine. I love this one because um, it's approved for infants down to one month of age. And you don't see that very often with medications. Pediatricians and family docs often have to use drugs that weren't really studied in the very low age ranges. But here the dose is 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilo per day. Um, you can do it uh, just once a day, or you can divide the doses. I will tell you that famotidine, as with many um, pills, um, may have um, magsterate in it, which sometimes has mammal products in it, and sometimes it doesn't. And the drug uh, companies and the pharmacists often can't tell you if their particular batch of magsterate has uh, mammal uh, parts in it. This has become a problem for us and some of our kids that have alpha-gal um, and have to avoid mammal products. Um, it's supposedly used with caution in pregnancy and breastfeeding, but I think that it really has a good benefit uh, ratio compared to risk, in my opinion. I've looked at the pregnancy studies and the breastfeeding studies, and adverse effects were really only seen with huge doses much, much higher than we would use in humans. This is John Steinbeck's cottage. I wanted to tell you a quick little story about how uh, for the first time in 41 years, I took a whole month away from my practice. And my intention was to write a book about how to take care of medical problems of kids with autism, but COVID kind of interfered with that. And Children's Health Defense asked me to write uh, something about COVID treatments in kids, uh, which we ended up uh, doing as an ebook. And then Bobby Kennedy and his team asked me to help with the Fauci book that I saw in the comments earlier, some of you have read. So I do recommend uh, the ebook to you if you wanna read a little bit in more depth. 
I will give you the caveat that we I wrote that in June. So um, it was based on what I knew then. And um, clearly a lot has happened since then. So I want to wind down here to talk a little bit about the biology of trauma and the effect of this pandemic on kids. Um, you probably know that the brain is not structurally complete at birth and that there's all kinds of stuff with myelination and pruning and synaptic connections being made and then pruned that happens in the first few years of life. So nature gives children a chance to adapt to the specific needs that are presented by the environment into which they've been born. But I don't think they're well equipped to adapt to COVID lockdowns. Um, they really need adequate nutrition and school closures meant no hot meals for a lot of poor kids. We need to have them avoid toxins like lead, mercury, alcohol, and I would argue artificial spike proteins. It's best if they're in a nurturing environment, but it's hard for parents to do good parenting and to be nurturing if they're uh, constantly stressed by financial um, challenges or the fact that they lost their job. And so it's been horrible for kids. And I think we really have to do better. I'm really worried that the COVID generation of kids is gonna have long-term effects from this psychologically, socially, and educationally. So just to remind you, science is incomplete and ever evolving. So I get very frustrated with this sort of don't change anything, let's just stay put. Um, let's wait for all the um, double blind trials three years from now. I think that some of us at least need to defy the status quo. Now I wanna close by reminding you um, about the value of wisdom and not just knowledge. Mark Twain said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure, it just ain't so. And then the other thing I love that he says is it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. So with those thought-provoking ideas, I'm going to stop my slideshow and open up to questions. Wow. Wow. We hit the eight o'clock mark, but you know what? This was really, really good information. And uh, I, if, I hope you can stay with us and answer a few questions. We've got some for you. We've got some for Dr. Merrick, too, uh, if you're all ready to go. Unless, Paul, did you want to jump in here and say something right away? Yeah. Wow. That was, that was, that was amazing. Thank you, Dr. Mumper. So, wow. So my first question is, you know, I think, you know, kids who, who get COVID, you're going to give them all the vitamins and the probiotics and whatever. The question is, which kids would you treat with ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine? How do you decide which ones? Yeah, so um, I think I mentioned in the slideshow that I used the hydroxychloroquine on um, a kid that I perceived to be at very, very high risk of hospitalization. And because he was autistic, hospitalization would have been a disaster for him and his family. He did great with it. The, he had been sick for four or five days, pretty sick. Um, and the mom swore he got better within 24 hours. And she's a very good historian. Um, for ivermectin, I've used it much more widely. Um, I will say that um, if I have a kid with a chronic illness, obesity, diabetes, um, chronic lung disease, cystic fibrosis, I think that they deserve ivermectin pretty quickly if they get COVID. So I would tend to want to give them that 
on the first day of their illness. If I've got a healthy, skinny kid, um, especially if he comes from a big family and gets licked by a dog, um, I think he's going to have a pretty good immune system and I might do all the other nutraceuticals first and not do ivermectin. I also do ivermectin for prophylaxis in certain situations and that works well when I can get it. Unfortunately now, um, only two pharmacies in town will fill my prescriptions and the price has skyrocketed as I'm sure everyone has noticed. Um, I would um, wanna look at the individual patient. So one of my um, big gripes with the whole management was this idea that you just stay home and do nothing until you get really sick and then you go to the hospital. You know, pediatricians are all about prevention. And I'm going to try to use all those lifestyle things first. And then um, some of my patients can't afford ivermectin because of the current costs. But I think they deserve it if they're at high risk or if they're pretty sick. So if anybody has um, a pulse ox, for example, that's less than a solid 95, 96, I'm going to think about ivermectin. If um, kids are at risk for going into the hospital or they live with somebody that um, you know, it would be a disaster if they got it. I'm going to give them ivermectin. Um, in my experience, everybody has tolerated it. Yeah, that's what that's what we've been learning. But anyway, we've got a question from Ellen McCormick who says children who have had COVID are now going to be asked to show proof of vaccination to go back to school, even though they've already had it. What should they do? Yeah, I really hope that we can um, fight against this. So I need to tell you a little bit about something called um, antibody-dependent enhancement. So first of all, natural immunity is better than vaccine immunity. The kids that get COVID and recover are going to have made um, antibodies to all kinds of proteins. They're going to have good T-cell immunity. They're, they don't need to have a vaccine. I'm also concerned that if they do have a vaccine, they're going to have a higher rate of side effects. Um, we're already seeing very concerning side effects. And, and this audience may not know about something called VAERS, which is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. It's run by the CDC. It's not a perfect system. I'm not arguing that. But um, we saw more reports of significant adverse events in the first six months of the COVID vaccine rollouts than we did in the previous 30 years of all other vaccines. So that's all the childhood vaccines, all the adult pneumococcal vaccines and flu vaccines and shingles vaccines. It's a disaster in my opinion. So um, I don't want any of my patients to get a vaccine if they've already had the illness. And we are gonna try to go to Congress and tell them that. We're gonna try to go to our state legislatures and educate them about that. But there seems to be a very fast rolling train that is very eager to get um, all children vaccinated. And I don't agree with the premise. So um, I might get a lawyer, you know, and try to fight it in that case, because I think that parents have to be advocates for their child. I have a question for Paul on this from John Percy. Will Omicron reduce COVID to a non-issue? What do you think? Either of you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's the million dollar question. I think we just don't know. We, you know, we don't have a crystal ball and 
So there are a number of different scenarios. You know, one is that um, it will spread to most of the population who will become immune, and then it may just fizzle out, or it may, you know, we it may mutate again. There's some data of of viruses that are a combination of Omicron and Delta. So it can back mutate and we can have new mutations. So, you know, I think people have to be cautious. I still think that prophylaxis is so important. The vitamin D, the vitamin C, the melatonin, people need to do whatever they can to prevent getting COVID and to minimize the impact. And, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Teresa Hickey has a question about the kids. She wants to know how common is vitamin D deficiency in kids? Yeah, it's amazingly common. I live in Virginia, so we theoretically are at a latitude that's too far north to get vitamin D year round. Um, I, almost all of my African-American patients are vitamin D deficient when I test them. And not just a little, I'm talking like levels of nine or 11. Um, it's uh, also very common in my population with autism. Um, those are kids that we check because there's a clear indication of vitamin D deficiency being a risk factor for autism. I honestly don't routinely check vitamin D levels in my Caucasian patients that are coming in for well check. I do talk to all of them about um, supplementing with vitamin D, especially in the winter time. Um, and I don't think that I've gotten anybody into trouble um, by not checking them and, and recommending the doses that I put on the slide. When I have followed vitamin D levels, we were able to, uh, if, if I've got a child with 11 or 12 uh, vitamin D levels, we are actually able to give them a huge amount of vitamin D before we get them up in the 50, 60, 70 range. So I think that vitamin D deficiency is very common, especially in latitudes where uh, the sun doesn't give you the angle. There's also what's called uh, BDR receptor um, single nucleotide polymorphisms. So some people have these polymorphisms, which you can look for if you do genomic testing, where they just don't process vitamin D well, they can't convert it in their skin. So those people are gonna need more supplemental sources, even if they do have access to adequate sunshine. Wow. Margaret Ward has a question for Paul. Can you discuss Omicron's effect on the eyes? What are your thoughts on why this variant seems to be affecting the eyes? And I didn't know this. And since I have an eye issue, I'm really curious to know your answer to this one. Well, I do not know about that eye question. Maybe Dr. Mumta knows about the eye question. Uh, yeah. So. Um... It, it does seem to me as a clinician that Omicron is presenting with either a scratchy throat as the first sign and less on the way of uh, the bad cough and also eye findings like the conjunctivitis. Um, we know that the eye is one place that um, COVID uh, viruses can get in through in the first place. Why Omicron has mutated to use that gateway, I don't know. Um, maybe, um, you know, the virus is always trying to figure out a better way to invade our cells and set up shop. And so maybe that was a sort of overlooked entry point. That's pure speculation on my part. But I do think that's clinically a thing. I think it's a clinical pearl. 
Okay. And uh, this is going to be our last question because we have run over. <laughs> We're doing well. Uh, this is from Laura Kasner, who wants to know, is there a percentage of the population that will never get COVID no matter how many times they've been exposed? What do you think? You want to be? I don't know. Um... <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I think that if you exposed you enough times you'll get COVID. I think if the viral load is sufficiently high, you'll get COVID. I, I don't think that there are people who have some kind of genetic constitution that would protect them against COVID. But I may be wrong. Uh, I think, um, especially with this variant, it, it's so infectious. Um, I, um, I don't think so. Elizabeth, what do you think? I, I do think that people like pediatricians, you know, I've been getting spat on and vomited on for 41 years now, and elementary school teachers have also had a lot of exposure to other coronaviruses. So, you know, my patients have all had a coronavirus, you know, not COVID-19, but there is a fair amount of uh, cross-reactive immunity so it seems to me that populations who are frequently exposed to young children um, might have developed enough cross-reactivity that they could escape. But I don't think we have that data yet. So um, we'll have to see what happens. See what happens. Well, in the meantime, we've learned a lot tonight. And this has been just super, doctors. Thank you very much. Liz Mumford, we're so happy to have you with us. Um, we'll have to do this again as this keeps coming up because people really do care about the kids and the kids are in school yeah. and oh boy. Uh, so there'll be a lot more questions coming up. And of course, Paul, you're our, you're our top guy here with us. And I know folks, there's a couple things you need to know about what's coming up. Um, this is obviously all the time we're going to have for tonight, but if we didn't get your question tonight, come back next weekend, we're going to be here with a lot more and we will take more questions then because, because Dr. Merrick, along with Dr. Corey, our key team, they are updating the protocols. All of this new information that's coming in from Omicron and studies and all of that, they're always updating things, but you're going to have uh, updated um, iRecover protocol. You're going to have an updated iMask Plus protocol that deals directly, more directly with Omicron. And of course, what we call the Bible which is Dr. Paul Merritt's treatment protocol for that. It's unbelievable. Any doctor anywhere in the world can look at this and figure out what to do for COVID. It's he's updating it. He's already got the red marks on. It's going to be perfect, perfected. And during this coming week, we're going to have it. So just check our FLCCC social media. We're going to be putting it out there when something is ready. Keep checking back on the website, which is of course, flccc.net. And you'll be able to get that information. Uh, yes, there's the website, flccc.net. It's full of good information for you. Now then, something else new that you need to know about, uh, new to us, whenever you happen to shop on amazon.com, and let's face it, we all do at some point or another. Now, Amazon Smile has smiled at us 
and they will donate a point five, 0.5% of the price of your eligible purchases, whatever you buy, to help us uh, as, as a nonprofit to get the word of what works in fighting COVID out to the world. So all you have to do, and it, of course it says it on the slide, but you simply type Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance Incorporated into the Amazon Smile nonprofit organization search bar. You hit select and you're ready to shop. And then every time you start shopping at smile.amazon.com, you'll be supporting the FLCCC at no cost to you. So that's really nice. And we thank all of you for your continued support of our work, whether it's that way, whether it's through our our merchandise or whether it's through uh, just the checks that some of you are writing that are just so wonderful because this is how we uh, can able to afford people to help us get the message out to the world so that it looks good on the website and everything else. And we're very, very grateful for that. But there's something else coming up that you need to know about. Um, if you want to hear Drs. Corey and Merrick in person, uh, head to Washington, D.C. on Sunday, January 23rd because you can this, there's a march and you can march with them and other doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals who want the freedom to treat patients with the medicines that their training research and years of clinical expertise taught them work best in this pandemic. I mean, they all want to be free to be doctors again, instead of having top down people telling them, no, you can't use this, even though you know it works you can walk beside them and show support. So there's the information. You can see it. Um, they defeat the mandates. They're against the mandates. And uh, there's just all kinds of stuff. But our doctors are particularly concerned about let doctors be doctors. And oh, and the other one little thing I want to add to you is we want you to keep those my stories coming in of how you beat covid uh, with the protocols, with the easy medicines, the inexpensive medicines that we have been promoting all along. We especially love it when you send us videos. So you just talk into your phone to do that. Ask a nine-year-old, they'll tell you how to do it. Your stories are heartwarming, heartwarming to us. Like keep us going when everything else bad is coming at us. And they are so inspiring to so many other people. So keep them coming. You're going to see a couple more here while some of you stay on and chat. We just want to thank you. And we'll be here next week. Thank you, docs. You were great. And thank you all for all the help that you give us. See you next week.